0: Turn with me again, if you would, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Lord willing, we will complete part 2. The last two points, last week we looked at the sealed scroll this morning. We'll look at the Lamb victorious and then the Lamb worshiped as we complete chapter 5. Let's ask the Lord to lead us again this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we... We worship a risen Savior who has conquered death and hell on our behalf. As we get this glimpse into the throne room this morning, Lord, I pray that your saints on this side of glory would see your immense worth. Help us to to see the incredible value of the Lamb and what He's done for us. Help us this morning, Lord, to listen. Help us to apply your word. I pray that you would help me, that you would give me your words this morning, that the Spirit of God would superintend our time together. Lord, I pray that if there are any here in our small gathering this morning that do not know you as Lord and Savior, that they would obey the gospel and rest and and trust in you as their mediator. Help us this morning, Lord. We ask these saints in your name. Amen. All right. Last week we looked at the sealed scroll, which is the encapsulation, if you will, of all of redemptive history. Verses one through five. In in this picture of the sealed scroll is a picture of God's hidden and redemptive will ready to be revealed at the time of the end. And it could only be opened. By one who was deemed worthy, and we talked about that in detail last week. We'll elaborate a little bit this morning, but I want to just remind you of of the four points that we looked at last week. The scroll contains God's fully decreed will. You remember the, the description of it is it is front and back, meaning it is filled up. The scroll does not have any blank spots. It does not need revision as history plays out, and God. Looks down through the corridors of time and sees how someone will respond. I may add that name in based on how they respond to the call they've gotten. No, the scripture says this: this scroll is filled front and back. He is declaring the beginning from the end. Isaiah 46:10. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Remember, as we looked at Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, there were some truths that we took away as they referenced the scroll. Point two was it reveals the eternally planned expansion of redemption. And the reason I use the term expansion is because the the picture of redemptive history was very closed to that of the nation of Israel early on. If you would have talked to the average Old Testament believer in the time of David or Solomon, the understanding at that time by the masses, if you will, would have been that salvation belongs to Israel. That is a nation. But all along, throughout all of um, eternity, God has always planned to include the Gentiles. Thirdly, it, it involves the bittersweet redemption picture. There is both blessing and cursing. And as we unravel the book of Revelation, we're going to see God's judgment unfolded. As we see the scroll open and the seals open one at a time, the picture is going to be of God's resounding justice, his wrath poured out. And David said in Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. John in, John in Revelation 10, 10 says this, and I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Romans 5, 9 reminds us of, of this picture. And Revelation Portrays a complete theology of God. We hear all the time, God is love. Absolutely, He is love. But He is also a God of holiness and justice. And we will see the Book of Revelation portrays Him as a God that will be um, that will bring retribution in terms of His wrath. Romans five nine. Since Thou therefore we have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved from him or by him from, notice what it says, the wrath of God. What are we saved from in salvation? The wrath of God. That is not preached in the pulpits across this land anymore, sadly. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 And to wait for the son from heaven who raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We also looked at the fact that this scroll, the sealed scroll, includes the numbering and the naming of the redeemed. Daniel references that when he says those whose names are found written in the book. This is a fixed number. In Reformed theology, we know this as the elect. God's decreeing an eternity past of those who will be saved, those who are his people. And in verse four, we see a curious response. It says John weeps. He weeps deeply as the will of God seems to be obstructed without remedy. Why? Because at that point, he hadn't yet seen the lamb step out of the shadows and And there's no one found in heaven or earth, and as the scripture says, or under the earth. It's a a picture of creation in its entirety. There is no one found who can open the scroll and carry out the will of God. And in verse 5, we find one of the elders comes to John. He says, weep no more. When we trace the timeline of redemption, we did that last week. We see the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The scripture says he has conquered. God sovereignly, wisely ordained the advent of the Savior through every possible obstacle, including horrific sin and satanic opposition. We celebrate the birth of Christ in two weeks. As you think about the events that surrounded his birth. Satan did everything he could to stop the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. He did everything he could. And and this is a reminder as, as we see the throne room that God is sovereign over sin. He's sovereign over Satan and everything that he would do to stop the advent of the Savior. And ultimately, the Lord Jesus carrying out the Father's will think about uh, what we looked at last week in spite of all of the sin, the things that were messed up in the history of the genealogy of Christ. God sovereignly ordained everything that came to pass and the Messiah came. Celebrate that. It should give us great joy to know that God is sovereign. Point number two. This morning, as we look at the lamb victorious, verse six says this between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went back or he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Remember in verse 5, the elder comes to John who is weeping. And the picture that you get as you, as you listen to John and you, you hear this desperation about him is a sense of hopelessness, a sense of despair. And when the elder comes to John and says, John, stop crying. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. In John's mind's eye, As he turns around and this vision continues in the throne room, what does he expect to see? What does he expect to see? The the elder tells him the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. What would you expect to see when you turn around? A lion. And, And this is the great paradox of the kingdom of God that we will see. When John turns around Instead of the the roaring lion, the king of the jungle, Aslan, instead of this mighty, ferocious beast that, that is the imagery of everything that is strong, what do you see? A lamb as it had been slain. What a paradox that is. The ferocious strength of the lion is seen in the sacrifice of the lamb. And this is, this is common. We see this as Jesus preached the gospel. He used paradox over and over. And by paradox, I mean a statement or proposition that despite sound reasoning from acceptable premises um, leads to a conclusion that seems senseless, almost logically unacceptable or self-contradictory that's what a paradox is it doesn't add up the math doesn't what'd you say the math ain't math yes but the kingdom of god is full of such paradox as we read through the gospels jesus said in matthew chapter 16 for whoever would save his life what must lose it Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's a paradox. It is the essence of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, things are not what they appear to be. When you think of strength, you think of the lion. And, and the elder says to John, John, he has conquered. And then you turn around and you see a lamb. And the picture is is potent there for us how did Christ conquer he conquered by laying down his life that's how he conquered the lion conquers through the self-sacrifice of the lamb and here is another reminder of that paradox and what is really the theme verse of the book of revelation or the theme verses if you will revelation chapter 10 or 12 verses 10 through 12 and i heard a loud voice in heaven saying now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our god and the authority of his christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our god listen to verse 11 and they says the saints conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives Unto the death. That's a paradox. How can you say you conquer. While at the same time. Not loving your life. Remember this is written to the church. That is going through immense tribulation. And Jesus is reminding them that the way to victory. Is through that path of suffering. Completely antithetical to what we hear preached today, isn't it? Completely antithetical. Best life now, right? It's the exact opposite of what Jesus is telling his church to prepare them. And what's more than that, not just to prepare them, but he wants the church to live with joy. That's amazing. As Mark is preaching through the book of James, that's a reoccurring picture that we see is God wants his church to be filled with joy. A paradox. How do you explain that? How do you explain a church that is filled with joy in the face of tribulation? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And it is potent in the face of the enemy who thinks he can beat the church down and beat them into submission. And guys, a lot of times that's us, isn't it? We feel so defeated and so beaten down. And our sense of joy is stripped away from us because we're not preaching the gospel to ourselves. We're not saturating our minds with our redemption. Because I I can tell you, if, if you saturate your mind with this picture, there will be an overwhelming sense of joy that comes to you. An overwhelming sense of joy. What do we see? What are the observations here? Verse six. Between the throne, among the elders, we see a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. John's focus adjusts, and we see the lamb coming into the picture. First of all, between the throne, he is among the elders. What is this picture? This is a hint of the mediating work of the lamb that we're to see here. We get a hint of the great high priest before the throne. We see this emphasized in verse 8 as we continue. 1 Timothy 2:5 for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What makes Jesus the only mediator is he is uniquely equipped to be that mediator. There is no one else that can fill that role. The priesthood that's established in the old Testament is a picture of that role being filled. Those men were flawed. Remember When the high priest came into the Holy of Holies once a year, what was the first thing he had to do? The first thing he had to do was offer a sacrifice for who? For himself. Why? Because he's a sinner. He's He's a type and shadow of the sinless one, but he's not. He's an imperfect picture. So the first thing he must do, even though this is a picture of type and shadow, there's a holy God on the other side of that veil. We must have a mediator. What, what is a mediator? How are we to understand this? Well, a mediator is a go-between, a reconciler, one who intervenes between two parties at odds. Either in order to make or restore peace and friendship or form a compact or ratifying a covenant, an arbitrator, if you will. Hebrews 9, 15 through 17 says this, therefore he, meaning Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant. Since the death, or so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transmitted transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established for a will will takes effect only at death since it is not enforced or not in force as long as the one who made it is alive what is what is he saying did jesus have to die yes why the will of the father could not be unwrapped could not be put into force until the death of what the KGV calls the testator, the one who makes the will. If you, in preparation for your death, write a will and that your vast fortunes will be passed on to your children. When do those vast portion, fortunes be, when are they passed on? When you die. The will is not in effect until you die. What is, what is he saying here? He is the mediator of that covenant ratified in his blood. The will could not go into effect until he died. So the picture of the lamb standing as it were slain is vital for us to see. Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die or the scroll could not have been opened. In Revelation 13, 8, it says this, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. That is the beast, everyone whose names was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of, of, of life of the lamb who was slain. When was it determined that Jesus must die? Eternity passed. That was before Adam and Eve were even created. Before Eve took of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Before sin entered this world, God, the Father, and God, the Son, Spirit, covenanted together and laid down the premise that the mediator must die. He must spill his blood. This is why John was weeping. Until there was a death, we could not be reconciled. It's all type and shadow until there was a death. The will of the Father could not be enforced, the scroll could not be opened. Could you imagine the hopelessness of our plight if Christ had refused the cup? If when he prayed he said, "Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me." If he would have taken a turn and deviated from the perfect Will of the father and said, you know what? They're not worth it. Look at these. Look at these people. The disciples who were with him in his hour of need fell asleep on him. And he came back to them three times. He prayed and each time he came back to his disciples, we find them asleep at the wheel. And he is under great distress. With friends like that, who needs enemies? And yet he was going to lay his life down for them. This is why John was weeping. Think, I, this, this thought just hit me as I'm, as I'm thinking about this. What a fool we are to think that we can represent ourselves. If, if you think about it, religion is man's attempt to get to God on, on his own terms, not God's terms. We are essentially making ourselves our own mediator. Idolatry is summed up in finding another mediator. All of it, whether it's the the mother of Jesus. She was a a righteous saint. She's not the mediator. The saints made righteous by the blood of Christ, not our mediators. Calvin, as he comments on 1 Timothy 2.15, Says this, Paul stresses the humanity of Christ as a reminder that Jesus shares in our humanity so that we can be joined to him and thus stand before God. Moreover, it must be noted that to be an effective mediator, Christ must truly be God and truly man. A mediator is a go between who can represent the interests of both parties. As God, Christ brings divine justice and mercy to bear on our relationship to our creator. And as man, Christ brings the perfect human obedience we need to be reconciled to God. Paul says it this way in Romans 3.21. God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation that is an expiation, the removal of sin's pollution, an atoning victim. That's what propitiation is, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, listen, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What if God would say to you and I, you know what? You're weak, you're frail. I'm just going to overlook your sin. I'm just going to overlook it. Come as you are. I'm going to accept you into my kingdom. What would that say about his character? He'd be flawed, wouldn't he? He'd be compromised. But he doesn't do that. He provides the only way that a man can be made right with a perfect, holy, righteous God through the mediating work of his son so that he can be at the same time righteous. He can be just and he provides the justification so that he is uncompromised and we are made right and holy through the work of the Savior. Notice that the lamb is standing, though slain. The word slain there in the Greek means slaughtered, butchered, mortally wounded. How does a lamb that has been slaughtered and butchered and mortally wounded standing? What, is he, what, what picture is he painting for us? Was the lamb alive or is the lamb dead? He's resurrected. He lives. He stands. He is alive. Those so slain. Revelation 117, we remember this when we went through it. Jesus introduces himself to John. In Revelation 1, the description of Jesus we see, and then John falls at his feet, is dead. And Jesus lays his right hand on him and says, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death. In Hades, he stands. He is alive. The other thing we notice about the lamb is he has seven horns with seven eyes. That's a curious description. Remember, this is a picture, symbolic. And and scripture interprets it for us. It says the, the seven horns with seven eyes are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What do you see here in terms of the Godhead right here in the throne room? Who's missing we see the father on the throne we see the son the lamb and who is applying with power the redemptive work of the lamb he's right there the holy spirit he's got and in the picture of, of of the horns is a picture of strength we'll see that that theme repeated through the book of revelation Horns represent power and authority. Revelation 6, 15 and 16 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves. And among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. Listen to who they're trying to get away from. When we see the picture of the lamb, the immediate thought is weak timid, the sacrificial victim. Remember something, Christ laid down his own life. Nobody took it from him. He did it willingly. Lest we think this is a picture of weakness. Notice what they're saying at the return of Christ. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of what? The lamb. The wrath of the lamb. We see eyes in the horn. This is a picture of the Holy Spirit working effectually. We call this um, effectual calling. The application of the redemptive work of the son. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 9, 2.19 says, but God's firm, firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. Is that a comforting thought for you this morning? you ever thought insignificant me might get left out, might get forgotten about? Oh." No. The Lord knows those that are his. And how many will be lost? Jesus said, not one, not one of those that the father has given me will be lost. Not one. Verse seven. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The lamb, the Lord Jesus steps up. And does what no one else can do. This is the supremacy and uniqueness of Christ on full display. I was talking to a young man recently about leadership. Leadership's a tough thing, isn't it? It's frightening. It can be terrifying. It's in many ways, and leaders can't lead unless they know what the right thing to do is. But Leaders, when they know the right thing, overcome their fear of doing the right thing and move past it. It is the epitome of manliness. And when we see the Lord Jesus pictured in John chapter 17, his manliness is on full display. Christ taking the scroll from the hand of the Father is a picture of him taking the cup of wrath from the Father. That's what's pictured here. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 36, Jesus went with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. Were the disciples in the dark about the travail of soul that Jesus was going through. No, he told them this was evident. There was no hiding this. Verse 39 and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Isn't this typical of us? When somebody in our church family needs prayer, it's so easy for us to fall asleep on the job. Going a little further, he falls on his face and prays, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He warns his disciple in verse 40 when he finds him sleeping. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Second time he goes away to pray. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went Away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to him, Sleep, take your rest. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise up, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. What if he hadn't taken the cup? What if he had not been perfectly obedient to the will of the Father? He takes the scroll from the Father's hand, this cup. And we know that in this cup is the the awful wrath of Almighty God and his holiness and his justice poured out on the Son on behalf of the redeemed. And in this, we see that the Lamb is victorious because he obeyed. Lastly, point three, the Lamb is worshiped. Verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl, or end golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. As soon as the lamb steps forward and does what no one else can do, the immediate response of the elders is to fall flat on their face in worship, in awe the great remedy has stepped forward. And this is a reminder of the divinity of the Savior. There's no rebuke here for the elders worshiping the Lamb. There is no rebuke. There are many who say, Jesus Jesus was never worshiped. And what they're really trying to say is, Jesus was not God in the flesh. But I would I would remind you in Matthew chapter 14, when Peter sees Jesus walking on the water and he steps out and starts walking and then doubts and he starts to sink in the Lord. Those that are in the boat, the scripture says, worshiped him. Jesus doesn't stop them. Why? Because Jesus is God. He is worthy to be worshiped. In Matthew chapter 28, Uh, The Sabbath, after the Lord is resurrected, we find Mary, both Marys going to the, the tomb and they find an angel who very specifically tells them, go and tell the disciples he's risen. And as they're filled with fear and great joy, they run to tell the disciples and they meet Jesus on the road and he says, greetings. And they came And took hold of his feet and worshiped him. What does the scripture say? Jesus didn't say to them, don't worship me. I'm not worthy. He says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. He is God. I want you to see something else here. And we talked about Hiram and his brass work in in Bible study this morning. And all of the intricate, beautiful work, the artisan, artist, um, artisanry that went into Solomon's temple. We see a picture here. In the elders' hands, they have a harp. And we see these vessels, if you will, with incense. And scripture tells us that these are the the prayers of the saints. Remember, this is a picture. What does that tell us? There's there's some important things that we need to see from this. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the prayers of the saints are the prayers of the expectant, the martyred, the embattled church. And in verse 9 who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The picture here is the prayers of the saints is as incense. What is incense? It is a fragrant burnt powder used in religious service. What is the picture here? The picture here is that the prayers of the saints is fragrant in the sight of God. What should we take away from that? Have you ever felt like your prayer was bouncing off the ceiling? Like it didn't matter if you prayed or not. One of the most effective deceptions of the enemy is to think your prayer is insignificant. You ever thought about that? One of the greatest discouragements to pray is we think it doesn't matter. Is that true? No, the scripture says the just shall live by faith. The prayer of the righteous is effectual. And and I want you to see this, that, that God holds the prayer of his saints in incredible value and worth. That's contradictory to what Satan would tell us. The prayers of the saints are incense in the sight of God. We know of John Knox as a preacher and the reformer of Scotland. And it was not his preaching that Mary, the Queen of Scotland, who was known as Bloody Mary, by the way, it was not his preaching that she feared. Do you remember what she said in a relatively famous quote? She said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. She knew the effect of the prayer of John Knox. John Knox is driving prayer. That we see recorded for us in history and we hear it in the words, give me Scotland or I die. What is he praying there for? He's praying for the reformation of Scotland. On his, death, on his deathbed, he was much engaged in meditation and prayer. And these words were often in his mouth. Come, Lord Jesus, sweet Jesus, into thy hand I commend my spirit, be merciful Lord to thy church, which thou hast redeemed. Give peace to this afflicted commonwealth. Raise up faithful pastors who will take charge of thy church. Grant us, Lord, the perfect hatred of sin, both of evidences of thy wrath and mercy. That was the prayer life of John Knox. It had the strongest, most powerful people in 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 all of the land of Scotland, shaking in their boots. Guess what? The Lord answered his prayer. Reformation came to Scotland. Made me wonder, do we pray like that for Wilkesboro? Give me Wilkesboro or I die. We underestimate the sweetness in God's eyes of the prayers of the saints. And we're being lied to it is one of the greatest deceptions of the wicked one, that God is unconcerned with our prayers, that they are but an annoyance, like a little child who never stops asking questions. Any of you have one? Sure. And, and, and you know, if we're not careful, our default answer is yeah, 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 because we're not listening. And, and there's, and by the way, kids pick up on this. Smart, most of them. Satan would have us believe that our prayer to the Heavenly Father is nothing more than annoying chatter from children that won't stop. Not true. Verse 9, scripture says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. I want you to see here that we see the repeated term worthy. We, we talk about Solomon's temple, and we think it's almost ostentatious in its picture of wealth, right? We studied that this morning. One of the things that, that, that hits you in the face is, wow, that cost a lot. It's over the top. What is being pictured there? That Christ is uncomparable to anything you've ever seen. That's why Solomon's temple is extravagant, because it's a picture of Christ. If you would have walked up to the steps of Solomon's temple, you would have been, wow, this is amazing. And it was just a shadow of the worth and the majesty of the Lamb. They sang a new song, and the song is based on the fact that it is this, by your blood you ransom people from for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The Lamb is worthy because he ransomed his people. We have a pause in the action, if you will. We won't see until chapter 6, the opening of the scroll. But the balance of chapter 5 is nothing but filled up With worship of the Lamb. What what does that tell us? It's pretty important, isn't it? Is worshiping God important? I would argue there's nothing more important. Yes, Jesse, I would argue it. There's nothing more important than worshiping the Lord. The essence of worship is that Jesus is worthy because he has ransomed us. He was slain. He has conquered the grave. He has redeemed his people. The word redeemed there, in the Greek, you purchased you and it uses the term you went to market. We, we went through uh, our book on the atonement and forever impressed in my mind is the book of Hosea in that chapter on the marketplace Just absolutely floored me as I think about the picture of atonement that is laid out in the book of Hosea. In Hosea chapter three, God God tells Hosea, go marry a wife who is going to cheat on you. And you're going to have children who I'm going to give hateful names to that are going to remind you every day you see them that I am forsaking or that you are forsaking the God of Israel. In Hosea chapter three, we find this picture where God tells Hosea to go to the marketplace and buy your wife out of slavery. She is at the meat market, exposed for all the world to see and all of her shame. She's in bondage. She's in prostitution. I want you to go buy her. She already belongs to you, but you're going to go buy her. And it's an amazing picture of both the the amazing grace of the Redeemer, but also the sinfulness of the redeemed. I want you to see that the picture of the redemption is of all kinds of people. Mark, you mentioned uh, Noah's Ark this morning. You ever thought of when we went through um, Leviticus and Numbers, you see line upon line about clean and unclean and it's like what what are we what are what is this all about the picture is of sin the clean and the unclean is the picture people when god tells israel you're you're to eat of only the clean not the unclean it's a picture the dietary um descriptors here was a reminder of both sinner and forgiven sinner cleansed and uncleansed and I was thinking as as I was studying this there's an amazing picture of this in Noah's ark isn't there the picture of the ark and by the way it was the story that my mother told me that I was converted listening to when I was a child as she was explaining to me The picture of the ark being Christ and that those that were found in Christ were saved from the wrath of God. And if you read in Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 10, we find a very interesting fact. God specifically saved who? Just the unclean animals? Genesis 6 calls it out. Tells Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean. Do you suppose that God had always intended to save the Gentiles? And do you suppose that that is pictured... In the story of Noah, this is borne out later, thousands of years later, when Peter is on a roof. And there comes an Italian man by the name of Cornelius. And Peter has his vision as he's praying and out of heaven comes his blanket filled with unclean animals. and, And God says to Peter, Peter, rise up, kill and eat. And Peter's response is, Lord dietary muster i can't do that besides bacon probably tastes awful no he didn't say that if he had only known if he had only known but but acts chapter 10 goes into this elaborate discussion to open up the truth to peter who thought that the gospel was solely for the nation of israel and we find that God tells Peter, what I have cleansed, don't call uncommon, or don't call unclean. And we see that that uh, Peter's perspective is dramatically changed. We find at the end of Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit is given to the Gentiles, and the the believing Israelites were marveling at the fact that, well, wow, what God Gives his spirit to the Gentiles as well. See the picture in verse 9? You have, by your blood, you have ransomed people for God. Notice what it says. From every tribe. Is he talking about the 12 tribes of Israel? Every language and people and nation. We're going to see in Revelation 7 what that looks like. But verse 10, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Christ has established and won the kingdom. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, Peter says this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There is a promise that we will reign with him. We'll get into that in much more detail in the future. Look at verse 11. And I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands the choir expands. You notice that worship is beginning with the twenty-four elders, and then the four creatures, the four living creatures. Then we see some angels around the throne. And now, listen. Look at what John is seeing in this picture. He said a myriad, myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands. What is that? It's a lot. A myriad is ten thousand. Quick math. Michaela, what is 10,000 times 10,000? You don't have to answer that. That's tough math. Wow, Mark. You must know a little math trick. The math was mathing on that one. Um, How do you count 100 million angels? And 1,000 thousands. What is the picture here? The expansion of worship is what's in view here. And a number of angels that John can't even begin. And these, I went, we went to a conference a few months ago and there was probably a thousand people there. We, we, as we gather here, I think we do a pretty good job of singing for just our small group. There is something about singing with a thousand people that is amazing. And not to diminish our singing together here, but when you begin to multiply the number of people that are singing together, and even singing harmony and parts together, it gives you goosebumps. The larger the number, and what the the picture of worship here is the ever increasing number of those that are worshiping the lamb. And and what it's to show us is the expansion of the worship of God. As his kingdom is expanded, we see the worship of of God expanded. There is an amazing picture of what we will see when we're in the presence of the king that will blow our minds. We have a sample of it as we gather together. In our church body, they sang with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. How many of those things are mentioned there? I counted seven. Again, the repeating theme of seven. The worship of the lamb is amplified. He is eminently worthy because he has exercised power, wealth, wisdom, and might, and he is due honor, glory, glory, and blessing. So here's the question for you and I, if the picture of heavenly worship is all-consuming, what should I take away from this? We think about that for a second, and we think about the fact that the primary the primary use of time, and I use the term time loosely in, in the context of eternity, but if, if the bulk of the redeems' time is spent worshiping God in this picture, what is that telling us about worship? How does that impact me? What is the application to me? What should I take away from this? I want us to see something, and Mark, you pointed it out in our Bible study. And again, blown away by the overlap. I want you to see that we are created to worship now. Now, we tend to think of heaven as, well, I will spend my time in eternity worshiping. God created us to worship now. The minute He regenerated us, we became. Living beings. What do living beings do in the presence of God? They worship him. So what does worship look like for us now? Romans 12. Verse 1. You know this well. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren. You have Romans 1 through 11. Incredible theological truth. Jumped on the people in the church in Rome. And. Paul's takeaway from all of that theology, what do you do with it? Well, we get a degree and we become subject matter experts on theology. No, that's not what he says. After all of that theology, Paul says, church, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is what? your spiritual worship do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of god what is good and acceptable and perfect god created us to worship him now now we 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 get and and we can We can have our minds impacted by this concept of secularism, which says that there is the sacred and the secular. When I leave for work Monday morning, that's the secular. When I come to church Sunday morning, that's the sacred. No, to the spiritual, what? All things are spiritual. And what we need to understand is God has intended that all of life for the believer looks like worship. All of life is worship. Well, how do we do that? By presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, not being conformed to this world. The world wants to shape our minds. The spiritual battlefield on which, on which we live is for our minds. There's only one way to not be conformed to the world. It's by filling our minds with the word of God. I talked about joy a few minutes ago. If joy is ever evasive for you, guess what? Our mind's not being transformed. One of the amazing things when, when you have to study to teach or preach, you are forced to bathe your minds. If, if, if this is something that goes beyond just spending time and devotions, as important as that is, we need to go deeper in the study of God's word. When you do and and you discipline yourself to sit down in front of God's word, like we would the TV, and we force ourselves to study, something amazing happens. Our mind becomes renewed by his word. And as we focus on that, what happens? All of a sudden, joy comes out of nowhere. Because as we think about the fact that I'm a filthy, rotten sinner that was on my way to hell and he redeemed me. What can I do with that but smile? But for for many of us, the Christian life is is this moribund experience where we're down in the mouth all the time. Why? Because our minds are not being renewed. Our spiritual worship is transforming our minds by God's word. Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and the truth shall set you free. How do we love him? We talked about this last night at the dinner table. How can we love him? We have the lamb pictured here who is of eminent worth. The question for us this morning is, do we love him? And what does that look like? What is our worship and adoration of the lamb look like? Well, Jesus said it. Well, if you love me, what? You'll keep my commandments. You'll obey me. John six twenty nine. This is the work of God that you believe in him who has in whom he has sent. The just shall live by faith. The life that is pleasing to God is the life of faith. We're going to come to the Lord's table in just a few minutes. That is a picture of faith. We come to the Lord's table. It is a cracker in grape juice. It is a picture of the body and the blood of Christ. By faith, we come to the Lord's table. That pleases God. Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And all that in them is saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor, glory and might forever and ever. First, we have the 24 elders and the four angels, then, millions of angels, then we hear all redeemed creation praising Trinity here. And then, 14, the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped, Amen. So may it be. This is trustworthy. This is firm. This is reliable. This statement. I want to read you as we conclude. And I'm going to ask Mark and Jesse to come up in just a minute as we come to the Lord's table. I wanted to read this to you. And I have been immensely blessed by this book. It's called The Triumph of the Lamb um, by Dennis Johnson. It's a commentary on the book of Revelation. And his conclusion at the end of chapter five here was worth sharing. He says, This the death of all in our culture has left us with an oddly credulous cynicism. We're cynical, suspicious of established government, education, technology, and medicine. Yet our cynicism is a recycled remnant of dashed hopes and broken faith, precisely because having lost sight of the God who is worthy, we have invested such trust in these institutions to save our civilization and us. John's churches lived in a setting where the worship of human power personified in Rome's emperors who were extolled as lords and saviors had reached blatant expression as one city after another vied for the privilege of becoming a temple warden, maintaining a sanctuary in which the emperor, emperor was adored, John will see this pressure to worship human power emerging from the sea as a beast and as a second beast arising from the land to make the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast, chapter 13. But the false prophets' miracles like the emerald fireworks and the thunderous voice of the Wizard of Oz are counterfeit. Government. Education, technology, medicine have roles to play in society, but none can bear the weight of glory. None are worthy of worship. No human institution or individual has created all things or reconciled rebels, making them God's priest and king. Therefore, none is worthy of the adoration that belongs to the enthroned one and to the lamb. John would not mislead us into the in this world as illusory, but he points to a reality more deeply real. The eternal rule of God amid his awesome, adoring courtiers in heaven and the authority of the lamb to carry out on earth the divine plan for the restoration and rescue of creation to its chief end, the glorification and enjoyment of God. And he closes with this song. We know it well. This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied in earth and heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask that as we think about, um, your first advent father and we celebrate that we celebrate promises kept from eternity past the coming of our redeemer our redeemer the perfect mediator lord i ask that you would fill our hearts with joy as we contemplate that that you would take our minds above the circumstances the strife the turmoil that's around us that we might be dealing with And that you would help us to fix our minds on you. That you would renew our minds through your word. And Father, that you would cause us to think about your second advent. And that you would come soon. We join the angels around the throne this morning as we sing and praise you. We look forward to singing with them in the not-too-distant future. We ask that you would keep us this week. Help us to worship you while we work, while we raise our families, while we do all the things that you've called us to do. We ask for your help and that your blessings would be upon this church family as we go from here. In your name we pray. Amen.